The Art of Hiding by J. M. Griffith. Chapter 21. The First Fear. Nan could remember none of her dreams nowadays, but she was always roused out of sleep with a dull ache in her stomach that felt like loss. She thought the chronic pain might fade with the paralysis, but she'd made a full recovery from the tack, and yet the ache remained. And then, two days ago, Nan had been staring intently at her reflection in a mirror, inspecting every feature of her face closely as if to detect hidden wounds or damage, when she'd seen the appalling evidence that the white boy had indeed left his mark upon her. It seemed too faint and too subtle for anyone else to notice, but Nan could not help zeroing in on the mark every time she glanced at her reflection, until she began to avoid mirrors altogether. A little before dawn on the day she was leaving Wanish Limply, Nan awoke with the same familiar sensation of loss, and after abandoning sleep, found herself mulling over the situation before her. The Elliot children were leaving Wanish Limply with little fuss or ceremony. All their friends knew they would see Nan and Tristan almost as frequently as they had done when the twins were living above the archway of the painted Pilchard Inn. Yet even with this knowledge, Nan still felt downcast about being away from the community and the Pilchard. She drew some consolation in the fact that by living in Botcher Street she would at least have a room of her own, maybe two, the Drews had them to spare, but it would not be the same as her bedroom above the archway. She'd come to love her cosy chamber with its beautiful view over the bay. Sally had promised Nan that the Crouchers would hire out every other room in the inn before hers, and so it would, as much as possible, remain Nan's. But packing away her things had felt like betraying a friend. Nan dreaded the moment when she would close the door and know that the rattle of the latch coming to rest was goodbye. She could dwell on it no longer. Dressing up warmly, Nan opened one side of the eye window and picked her way down the stone staircase built into the archway. Over in Dab Harbour, a few fishermen were moving, but in the faint young light of the coming day, both communities bathed in a still, serene beauty. The town seemed to have made an effort as a farewell, and Nan knew just where to admire Wanish in its best light. Walking back through the archway, she headed left up the street. Ambling up the steep steps cut into the cliff leading to the Benjamin Wallace Thirdly School, Nan frequently stopped to savour each look out over Wanish as if it was her last. She suddenly came to a halt, however, when she approached the vantage point from where she'd taken her first true look over the entire town. Sitting upon the broad stone step was a figure whose face was hidden beneath the hood. Under normal circumstances, Nan might have been fearful or at least wary by the sudden appearance of this curious figure, but recent experiences had changed her. She waited in silence for a few moments, reluctant to intrude upon the person's peace. Beautiful, isn't it? she said softly, hoping not to startle the individual as they had startled her. The hooded head turned in her direction, and then a lazy hand extracted itself from a pocket and pulled down the hood to expose spiky, gravity-defying hair in the shape of a clump of coral. Suppose so, Cayman Pike replied. May I sit with you? Nan asked. Cayman shuffled along the step, making room for Nan. 
They sat in silence for a little while, enjoying the view laid out before them. The scene was beginning to lose some of its magic, what with the growing light, making everything appear more solid, real, and less like an enchanted mirage, shimmering on the edge of the world of dreams. Couldn't sleep then? asked Nan. No, not when there's so much being to do, he replied. Besides, the head's buzzing with thoughts. School, future, you guys leaving today, you know, thoughts. Dressed in the hooded top, Cayman looked smaller and younger than Nan had ever seen him. What's the world like outside Wamish and Dab, Nan? Mm, in many ways, very similar to this. Same bickering. In other ways, nothing like it at all. Cayman would like to experience it. Why? When you've so much here. But what have we got here, Nan? He asked. Cayman's lived in this little mile or so of land his whole life. There are far worse places to live, for sure. And through living canvas, you've no doubt visited places and worlds no imp could ever imagine. They're copies of worlds, Nan. They're not authentic, not genuine, not true life. How can he get on with being in a counterfeit world without feeling like a phony? He asked, although he was not expecting an answer. I don't know what true life means, Cayman. As long as you're living a life, it has to be true, surely. Take it from me, Cayman. The outside world is fine, but Wanish and Dab are magical places. But Cayman just can't take it from you, Nan. He'll have to experience it for himself. Cayman's only known that his whole life. Wanish could be the soundest place on the planet, but Cayman wouldn't know because he's got nothing to judge it against or measure it by, you know? There has to be more. More than this, Nan finished the phrase for him. Cayman nodded. Careful when you wish that, Cayman. I know someone who said the same thing, and he got more than he bargained for, cautioned Nan. She paused for a moment. Will you come and stay with us in Botcher Street sometime? I could show you part of the rest of the world. For sure. They gazed out over Wanish Limply once more. In the streets below, someone emerged from their cottage, yawned, stretched, scratched and peered up at the sky to gauge the weather for the day. The chimney pots of a couple of houses began to throff and fume, the thick smoke staying close to the rooftops before drifting up into the atmosphere. Drew dripped from the branches of the sequoia with the sound of light rainfall. An engine, and then another, sputtered into life, and after a few minutes' preparation, a couple of fishing boats chugged out of Dab Harbour and made for the open sea, their wakes fanning out like huge plumes behind them. I wish I could freeze this view and place it within a snowstorm ball, said Nan. I would gaze at it for hours. I'd rather be here than anywhere else I know or could imagine. Cayman stared at Nan and finally smiled. I will miss you, Nan. Nan will miss Cayman too. There was genuine affection towards Nan from Geoffrey the dodo. She had hauled the fat bird onto her lap where he'd settled into a comfortable heavy heap of scrubby feathers, occasionally craning his neck to nuzzle her ears with his immense bill. After what the white boy had inflicted upon her, Nan felt a connection with the dodo's unique and isolated position. Of course, Geoffrey had no idea he was the only representative of his species left on the earth at that time, but unconsciously, Nan had adopted him as her own totem all the same. She scratched the fat bird's chest and gazed up at the caretakers ranged in front of her. It was late in the morning of her final day in Wanish Limpley, and Nan was sat in the lounge with a painted pilchard in. 
In front of her were all the caretakers who did not have special assignments within the canvas. They were not conscious of having done it, but the caretakers were seated or were stood facing Nan in a manner that suggested she was on trial. The black silk curtain that had been pulled over the inn's gateway to prevent any intrusions added a further touch of solemnity. Certainly, I am delighted there have been no sightings of the enemy for ten days, said Adrian. <laughs> Damn good job too, proclaimed Gilbert Croucher. There is some talk of abandoning Wanish and Dab altogether. Four dead and dozens threatening to leave. It's not a good tally. I dare any islander to start harping on about their sovereignty to me now. <laughs> I'll tell him just where they can ram their Declaration of Independence. Yes, thank you, Van Dieven, Adrian responded. Even though we appear to have lurched into a period of relative peace, I would propose that now is not the time to appoint a new caretaker after all, and hope you will support me in this decision. And yet you were mightily keen to recruit your brother after the death of Templeton, said Moulton. Yes, I acknowledge my insensitivity over that matter, and I apologise. If your reluctance to appoint a new caretaker is due to Russell's encounter with the sisters, I would urge you to think again, Morton continued. We all run the risk of what your brother endured every time we arm our staffs. Templeton suffered that same fate and worse. I'm not saying we should dismiss the idea of a new caretaker altogether, replied Adrian. Indeed, it has been agreed that Russell should shadow Van Dieven and Norbert for a time. He's not ready to wield a tetch against... Excuse me, Adrian interrupted Moulton. I did not intend to give the impression that I thought your brother was the only candidate suitable for the post. Who says the new caretaker has to be your brother? Rex Forsley is ready and able to wield a tech staff. I would happily have him as my apprentice. It was agreed that Rex was out of the running for the position, explained Norbert. No, no, you and Adrian agreed it, Norbert declared Moulton. As you supported Adrian's nomination for Russell as caretaker, I think it only fair to remind you that Rex received the backing of both myself and Corvus Rift, but was dismissed out of hand. Fordsley boy is not to be trusted, growled Van Dieven. With respect, Van Dieven, I'm inclined to believe that you would be suspicious of angels and newborns, replied Moulton. He stroked a faint scar beside his eye and turned back to Adrian. Also, once again, can I ask why there are only ten of us? We're spread far too thinly as it is. Why not recruit a whole army of caretakers? The sisters would be no match for fifty fully armed caretakers, surely. <laughs> an army, exclaimed Vesta Kirkpatrick. Oh, that's just why I became a caretaker, to become part of a military presence. People are dying, Vesta. I see a need for one. And just who will this army be answerable to? Who will command it? continued Vesta Kirkpatrick, and in the event of an attack, just how long will it take to muster this force? Or maybe we should have standing military contingents in both communities. Moulton turned his back on the head teacher in an emphatic manner. Adrian? There were no queues around the corner to become a caretaker when Templeton died, Moulton, replied Adrian. Anyone from either Wanish or Dab could have applied. Therefore, it might be an impossible task to recruit more forces. It must be remembered that we also possess the fairly hefty reserves of the Havocs and Tam Harvey, even Luke Lucas and others, but I take your point. I think the more pressing point is that if the white boy can now possess people, I don't see how an army or anything can cope with that type of threat. We don't stand unearthly, proclaimed Gilbert Croucher. We'll become so paranoid that we'll start attacking people for acting a little out of character. I stand behind that bar and from one day to the next, I don't know how any of you are going to react to a simple evening, what you haven't. If we start suspecting one another, 
Wanish and Dab will splinter and fail. I don't think he'll possess anyone again, except maybe in extremis, said Cat Sanderson. I don't think he foresaw what would happen when he took that plunge. It is my belief that he was not entirely in control of his situation. What do you mean? asked Adrian. I mean that there were times in the last few weeks when the white boy through Nan had an opportunity to kill you, Adrian. And you, Norbert, me, possibly others, without witnesses or resistance. But he did not take them, or could not take them. Go on. We have not forgotten that Nan is here with us, of course, said Cat. It was as if the caretaker's attention had suddenly been drawn to the fact that Nan was trespassing upon their meeting and had not been sitting there in front of them for the last 15 minutes with a large extinct bird on her lap. Am I in the way? asked Nan. Not at all, replied Norbert. Can you possibly forgive us for our terrible rudeness? Disgraceful of us to ignore you for so long. I'm so sorry. Would you like another Croucher's Bottom, sweetheart? I think we could all do with a top hat. A pensive silence filled the air for a couple of minutes. What are your thoughts, Nan? asked Moulton. Do you think Gilbert's right to be worried? Will the white boy possess other people as he did you? No, I think Cat's right, Nan replied. I don't know how I know or how to describe it, but I think he, he got lost inside me, or maybe lost his way, if that makes sense. Yes, chorused around the inn. The caretakers nodded and sucked from their drinks. Excuse me, Nan, I can contain myself no longer, began Vester Kirkpatrick. You're not going to like what I'm about to say, but I have to say it. I find it barely believable that anyone would attempt to tackle the white boy alone with aggressive intent. I didn't go after him, Nan answered, slightly taken aback. It was made clear to me that I had no choice. Furthermore, you pursued and fought him not only without a suitable weapon, and not only with an escape parachute, but also without confiding to anyone where you were going. It was made clear to me that I had to go, and everyone was preoccupied with the sisters or the crusaders or the conquistadors at the time, replied Nan. What was I supposed to do? Ask you to step out of battle for a moment to get your permission to go and play with the white boy at his house? Don't be flippant, Nan, Norbert warned her. Sorry. I should remind you, Nan Elliot, continued Vesta, that you have been here only a matter of weeks, and during most of the period you've been unconscious after what you went through. What were you thinking? Only a few weeks ago, Nan would have felt intimidated and shamed at being rebuked by a person like Vesta Kirkpatrick, especially in front of a group of adults she liked, but defiance was her overriding feeling now. Miss Kirkpatrick, is the Pilchard now one of the school's classrooms? No, of course not. I can see where this is going. Then you'll know I'm going to ask the question. By what right do you have to grill me like a pupil who's just managed to blow up the school's toilets? I'm questioning you as a caretaker, Nan, and as someone who has your care foremost in her thoughts, replied Vesta, ridding herself of her vocational voice, not as a head teacher. There was something in the look of Vesta Kirkpatrick's eyes that sparked a memory in Nan. It was in the ancient house of the white boy. The picture the white boy had been painting had shown the sisters' battle with the caretakers beside Templeton Likely's house. Nan recalled the gratitude she'd felt towards Vesta Kirkpatrick when the wounded caretaker had risked her own life to rescue the stranded children from the sisters. 
The head teacher had adopted the same look of concern then, too. I understand. Forgive me, Miss Kirkpatrick. I'm sorry, said Nan. And the nod they shared was a pardon from both sides. She turned to face the others. May I ask how you reached me in Uncle Norbert's rooms? Did you know the white boy was there? No, we did not know he was there, replied Adrian. As to the matter of how we reached you, it'd be best if Moulton answered that question. We followed his lead. Moulton took a long draught of sequoia sap before answering. There was a point in our fight with the sisters outside Templeton's house when they... just stopped, he explained. There was no activity from them whatsoever. Then they began to fade. Sorry to interrupt Moulton, but they turned. What I can only describe as almost fully transparent before they faded. The other caretakers nodded. Norbert's right, they did, agreed Morton. Do you happen to know why, Nan? asked Adrian. Not a clue, she replied, although I think I was hurting him at that time. The caretakers appeared stunned. You hurt him? Morton asked, giving each word a weight befitting the revelation. Unarmed? You hurt him? I think so. Nan answered. He was screaming. Think I hurt him. Don't know how. They seemed to latch on to that news. Each caretaker immersed themselves in their own thoughts, their mind absent from their eyes. A few moments passed with many searching stares before Moulton continued. Anyway, in this near transparent state, we could see you and the white boy grappling together within their forms. Then the sisters began to fade. As you know, they normally mark their exits by turning into a spinning vortex of cloths and images, but they were fading as if being dissolved out of existence. We don't know why. Not even Kat has seen anything like it. Kat Sanson blinked out of her thoughts, glanced at Moulton and shook her head almost imperceptibly. I rushed at them, but instead of being repelled, I found myself in Norbert's rooms. I couldn't tell you why I did it or how I knew I wouldn't be hurt. I just remember seeing you and him... I came to help. He shrugged, acknowledging that the answer may seem inadequate. Adrian waited to see if Moulton had anything to add before saying, When Moulton disappeared through the sisters, we could see him in the rooms beyond. Adrian decided to resort to Moulton's shrug too. We followed. It's not an experience I wish to repeat, said Cat. It's never been tried before, added Norbert. I don't suppose we'll ever get the chance again. Nan thought things over for a few seconds. Am I the only person to survive a direct attack by the white boy? It took several seconds for anyone to answer. Yes, Cat replied eventually. Well then that makes me useful, surely. I agree, chimed in Morton. And what use could we put you to, Nan? asked Adrian. Aren't there any tests you could do? Nan replied. I must be able to help somehow. Once again, I agree with Nan. Adrian and I are hardly about to experiment on our own niece, Morton, cried Norbert, nor allow others to do so. Nan, the truth is that we have no idea how to interpret the episode between you and the white boy, explained Adrian. Even if there was some significance to your part in it, and I stand with Norbert, we are not going to use you as a guinea pig to be thrown to the white boy. You're probably right, Nan replied. He said I wasn't unique or special. If you weren't before, you are now, wheezed Even. I saw the look he gave you. Van Deven tailed off and flashed a look of panic at Adrian. 
It reminded Nan of the time when they were on board the Myriad bringing them to Wanish Limply, and Captain Mace had blurted out more information than he'd intended to dole out. What look? asked Nan. Gilbert and Vestra appeared to be curious as well. Yes, what look? It's nothing to concern yourselves over, said Adrian, allowing the weight of his stare to bear down upon Van Dieven. She has a right to know, Adrian, said Kat. What would she do with that information? How could she apply it? What look? repeated Vesta Kirkpatrick. It was a look of hatred, wasn't it? Nan suggested. It might well have been. But that was not all, was it? No. Irritation? Annoyance, then? Possibly, replied Adrian, equivocally. It was fear, Nan, cried Cat. When you were spent on the floor, the white boy shot you a look of fear. For some reason, the white boy fears you. The room fell silent, except for the gentle hollow sound of Geoffrey swinging his beak together to gently tug at Nan's ear. Nan's astonishment swelled like an expanding vacuum in her mind. He feared me. How could he fear me, she thought to herself. That is why we should not be allowing you to leave the communities, declared Moulton. Finally, we have a weapon he truly fears. She hurt him. And how should we use this weapon, Moulton? asked Norbert. Employ Nan as our mascot to run ahead of us when we go into battle? Do not try to act upon this knowledge, Nan. Adrian's advice was delivered in the stern attitude of a command. He was afraid of you then, at that moment. That's all we know. You may not be so fortunate on the second encounter. His voice softened. Please tell me. Tell us all exactly what happened from the moment the sisters began attacking the merchants on the cliff up until the time when we arrived in Norbert's room. Leave nothing out. We will judge its significance. Almost mechanically, Nan went through the details of her experience with the white boy, choosing not to mention shooting or her glimpse of the hideous figure with a face in the dark corner of the white boy's house. In her mind, she justified not reporting that creature with a line of Adrian's. What would they do with that information? How would they apply it? No, she told herself. It would only frighten them. Best to keep it to myself, hidden. They might never encounter that thing. By the time she'd finished her account, Nan found herself exhausted, but grateful to be rid of the episode, as if it had been purged from her. Everyone else mulled over the events. Mr Croucher said there are only four people killed, Nan added, as if to herself. I saw the sisters kill the merchants and two other people, but no one else died. Can that be right? That is right, replied Adrian. There are other casualties, mainly through the actions of the Crusaders and the Conquistadors, but nothing fatal and nothing lasting. Doesn't that surprise you, asked Nan, that he let loose all those forces and only four died? Almost all the white boys' attacks that have ever happened have been in living, dynamic worlds, rarely beneath the great canvas. Although recently the ratio seems to be changing, he seems to be expanding his ambition, maybe even overstretching himself. There is something about the great canvas, muttered Van Dieven. Something not even he can control, I'll lay money on it. Nan pondered over this and then asked, So someone planted the canvases to unleash the sisters, the crusaders and the conquistadors? Adrian nodded. Who? You must have an idea. There was no word, no sound. Even the sea seemed silent. 
The caretakers wore a single shamefaced expression. Suddenly, Nan understood. She cupped her hands to her face in horror. It was me! You think it was me? How could it have been me? Sleepwalking. Norbert barely uttered it. Nan sank her face into her hands. It wasn't you, Nan, Cat quickly responded. It was him, understand? You can bear no responsibility. You're not to blame. So I must have planted them weeks ago. Nan's voice was muffled beneath her fingers. Many of them, yes, replied Adrian. But not all of them, Norbert added. Even the white boy does not seem to have been responsible for planting all the canvases that led to the attacks over the last few weeks. It appears that there are other influences at work here, Nan, said Cat after a significant pause. Forces we don't know about. Some harmful, some possibly helpful. You must remember that we are a young community. We're still finding our way and learning more each day. We don't know everything. Silence once again. Has there ever been an attack on the community on that scale before? asked Nan. Nothing as bold as that. Nothing documented. Not since Squire Wallace's time, replied Adrian. Never an attack on both Wanish and Dab during our time. Nothing involving the sisters, the conquistadors, the crusaders all at the same time. Nothing. Further silence. Tell me, Uncle, is this an end or a beginning? Every caretaker's stare locked onto Adrian. It was as if that one question had articulated all of their fears. Adrian seemed to search within himself for a moment. I cannot answer that. After lunch on their final day, the Elliot children and their father finally dragged themselves away from the painted pilchard inn and made their way down to the jetty where the myriad awaited them. Nan could see Captain Mace already loading their luggage onto the tugboat as they approached the small gathering of people huddled around the end of the stone jetty. Nan had really said her farewells to Cayman Pike and the caretakers that morning, and Luke Lucas and Miss Mutchley were dispatched with an informal and a formal handshake, respectively, but saying goodbye to the Crouchers was the hardest task of all so far. With a tear in her eye, she made her goodbyes and thanked the Croucher family for all the kindness and tolerance that Sally, Gilbert and Toby had granted them. For once, Toby was without words and secretly kept dabbing at his eyes. Nan did not even complain as she was crushed in Gilbert's affectionate hug, but noticed that Tristan was chewing his bottom lip and frowning fiercely in an effort to stem any excess traces of moisture in his eyes. All the caretakers the twins had met were present too, except Vesta Kirkpatrick, who had commitments at school. As Nan said goodbye to Cat Sanderson, the tall, beautiful woman knelt down on the stone jetty. So she was only slightly higher than Nan, and spoke to her in confidence. Only you and I here can truly know what it means to be under his sway. You are vital to me, Nan, for you mean I am no longer alone in this place. Always feel free to come and see me. If you give me warning, I'll make sure my lenses are in. Nan hugged her then. More than Geoffrey the dodo, Nan realised she identified with Cat most of all. It was not long before they joined their luggage and the tugboat headed off across the choppy waters. But are your rooms in quarantine or not? asked Tristan. It's just that I've got a lacoche later and I'd be a bit trounced without a gateway. To most people, yes. But we've established a single secure gateway to the pilchard, which you and Nan may use in a quiet corridor near my rooms. Save your parachutes. Hmm, heroic. 
I don't mean to sound like the old boy doesn't know what he's doing, but the captain's going to miss Dab Harbour by a mile, Tristan informed his two uncles. No, the good captain is on course, Adrian explained. We're heading for the archway for the waterborne craft to take us out of the great canvas and around to the theatre. So, we're not going over the island? Well, that would be a little hard with a tugboat, Tristan. Besides, we're cutting things as fine as fine can be. We don't want to upset your mother. Oh, let us walk over the island, please, implored Nam. We can meet the myriad on the other side. After the Elliots and Norbert had passed through Dab Harbour town and were up on the eastern coastal path about to disappear from view, Nan and Tristan looked back and saw that their core group of friends were still stood on the jetty waving them goodbye. They waved in return and then carried on walking, finding it too hard to look back again. Once through the standing stones, the twins did glance back, but everyone and everything they knew and loved about Wanish Limpy had vanished. They collected Emma from the silent foyer of Dab Island Hotel, where Nan left a farewell note for Shelley and Wilton. In many ways, she was glad to avoid the tension of saying goodbye to them in front of Tristan, and Nan convinced herself that she would make the effort to come and see them after settling in Botcher Street. Leaving Simeon Fordsley to haunt his empty hotel, the group made their way down through Janna's Quay, along a combination of wooden stone steps built into or fixed onto the cliffs, which led to the stumpy stone jetty that lay beneath the theatre. There, the myriad was tied up, Captain Mace having kept the tugboat's engines running, and so it was time to say the hardest of farewells. "'I'm not much good at goodbyes,' declared Adrian. But fortunate for me, I know your father's farewell is more pressing than my own. All I will say is that the community owes you both more than you can ever know. No other two people in Wanish and Dab have contributed more than you in such a small span of time. I am honoured to call you my family. Safe journey. Adrian embraced them both, tousled Hartley's hair, and before the twins knew it, he was bounding back up the wooden rock staircase. Then Emma and her brother went into the Myriad's cabin, allowing the twins some privacy to say goodbye to their father alone. So, Russ, you still haven't got a job? No, Tristan, but I am certain I might have one fairly soonish. I'm proud of you, Dad, said Nan. We're both proud of you. Russell could bear it no longer and grabbed his children in a long hug. Dad? Were Tristan, Hartley and I a mistake? whispered Nan, finally giving voice to the question that had been in the back of her mind since the night their mother had left the family. Why would you think that? her father replied anxiously. Well, if you and Mum never get back together, then maybe we three children weren't supposed to happen, said Nan. Maybe you only stayed together because of us. Russell placed his hands on Nan's shoulders and stared his daughter in the eyes. You and your brothers are the better part of me, the best part of me, the part of me of which I am most proud. I'm sure your mother feels the same way. Never think you're a mistake, ever. Even if your mother and I never speak again, I'll always be grateful to her for having you three. I will not let you leave unless you know that. I understand, Dad. Father and daughter hugged each other again, and much to Tristan's exasperation, he was soon brought back into the hug as well. It's all right, Russ, said Tristan. We'll see you as often as ever. I know, I know, replied their father. It's absurd, but I still have to overcome the fear that you're leaving me. 
Don't let your schoolwork suffer and do as your mother says, but come and see me as often as you can, won't you? I came here with you, and a good part of me leaves here with you too. Russell kissed Hartley goodbye, and as the myriad heaved away from the island, their father stood and waved them off until he was no more than a black spot hovering above the waves. With the tugboat pulling further and further away from the island with each second, Nan and Tristan could see that Dab looked a truly beautiful location. On the mainland, however, the sharp rocks and the shoddy huddle of buildings depicted in the great canvas would appeal to no casual sailor passing by. As far as the twins were concerned, the only thing that held even the slightest interest for them in the boat trip back to the city was the canvas that carried them there. A little way along the coast from Wanish, the myriad turned in towards a small river in the shadow of an archway of trees that really had no place being in that situation. Captain Mace employed his plumb line for safety, and everyone but Emma and Hartley felt the subtle lurch forward as the canvas dragged the tugboat into its world. Instead of the succession of canvases, the twins had travelled through on their way to Wanish. There was now one continuous landscape of rolling hills and woodland. What does the captain's plumb line do? whispered Nan to Norbert. Well, canvas naturally attracts canvas, hence why we often use black silk covers to stop them coming into contact with each other, exclaimed Norbert. Inside the weight at the end of the plumb line is a long coiled strip of especially sensitive canvas. When the captain is nearing a gateway or even a dynamic world, if he has any doubts as to its exact location, he can use the plumb line to steer him on a true course to the centre of the canvas. If he uses it again, you'll see that the plumb line does not sink, but rises in the water, pointing to the centre of the closest uncovered canvas. But... When are we at the moment? asked Tristan. Well, this is actually one of our few successful prehistoric canvases. <gasps> you mean we might see dinosaurs? Spanking! Alas, no, Tristan. It doesn't even nearly go that far back into history. You might see the odd druid and occasional henge, maybe, but little else, I'm afraid. Still, with all the excitement of recent days... The thought of not having a pterodactyl swoop down and carry me off to be devoured at its leisure is just dandy with me. <laughs> of course, Bert, we didn't go through this world at all. A connecting canvas could take us right back into the city in a moment, whispered Tristan. Indeed, but our almost instantaneous arrival back at the family stamping ground might be a little hard to explain to your mother. The journey passed without incident or sighting of a druid or any sign of life at all other than a few birds, as well as a great many insects, and there were no clues to the prehistoric nature of the canvas whatsoever. One other thing, Uncle, Nan asked several hours later. Oh, questions, questions, he cried out with a laugh. This is what it must be like to be a parent. I swear the demands of my sisters are easier to meet. Go ahead. Well, we've been in this one canvas for hours, haven't we? You have, oh niece of mine. But if I'm not mistaken, when we first came to Wanish, we passed through several living worlds and gateways, didn't we? We did. I know, because I set them up. Well, why? We thought it was at large then, and there had been several attempted attacks on you. It's always best to keep changing canvases if there is any chance that the white boy is pursuing you. He can only exert his influence on one world at a time. If a person or persons keep jumping canvases, it's just that little bit harder for him to catch them. Incidentally, when we get home, 
I am to hand over a couple of Havoc's thimble parachutes for you to keep in Botcher Street for emergencies. And I stress emergencies, Tristan. They're disguised as rucksacks. I'd be obliged if you'd keep them away from Emma. A few hours later, the myriad turned into a familiar waterway, and at the canal basin, the twins said their farewells to Captain Mace at the exact spot where they'd first met him. Bye, Captain, and see you soon, they'd said quite innocently. Here, here, see you soon, eh? he said, giving Nan and Tristan the most blatant conspiratorial wink. I gets the picture. <laughs> see you soon indeed, eh? His chuckle turned into a laugh that developed into a cough, producing Captain Mace's trade ball ball of phlegm, which he spat onto the canal with a revolting fanfare of grunts and gargles. Nana developed an affection for the old sailor, but there were certain habits of his she was not going to miss. A few moments later, and the captain had spun the tugboat around and was saluting them all goodbye. They watched the myriad disappear back up the canal, until there was no trace of the tug having ever been there at all other than the ruffled feathers of some bewildered ducks. It was not long before they were in a taxi, and sometime in the late afternoon they arrived outside 59 Botcher Street. Even though he had keys to the house, Norbert was halfway through his elaborate knock, when a voice from above called down. "'State your purpose here or get lost!' shouted Grandpa Drew from his second-storey window. "'Father, it's us!' called up Norbert. "'Ah, Emma, Norbert!' Absent without leave again, bellowed the old man. <laughs> I'm used to Norbert's truant shenanigans, Emma, but you, me girl, have only been home for five bleeding minutes and you're already off gallivanting around the countryside. <laughs> it won't do. There's no one left to defend the family homestead. Sorry, Dad, replied Emma. And now I hear all your offspring are to live here too. Why am I never told anything? got to put them. We packed in here like sardines in a gun cartridge, constantly tripping over each other. <laughs> Should have married a pygmy. Then I might have been able to squeeze you all in. But then I didn't know my home was to be such a bleeding doss house for all and sundry. Well, don't just stand there at the gates attracting attention. Get in. Get in. And Tristan, Nan, don't you dare learn the layabout slacker ways of your aunts and uncles. Bunch of skivers, the lot of them. Bit of square bashing would have sorted them out, <laughs> I can tell you. He mumbled as his hoary old head disappeared back inside. Botcher Street remained unchanged and still bore all the symptoms of scandalous neglect. Yet the twins would not have it any other way. Wanish Limpley was a truly miraculous place of immense sequoias, dodos and visits to times past, yet nothing but friends could be taken for granted there. Citizens vanished without trace and ancient villains emerged from nowhere to attack people. Wanish was an unfinished canvas, always changing, never settled. On the other hand, the Drew household would now be a constant in the twins' lives, a place that would not alter without a struggle, a stable force rooted firmly by its own inertia to change. In some respect, Nan imagined Botcher Street represented the spirit of Norbert himself, a scruffy, eccentric old relative who could always be relied upon to be there for them. But she'd almost forgotten about the Drew sisters. They might have been frozen in time from the occasion when Russell had informed them all about the move to Wanish Limpley weeks before. Grandma Drew had not yet freed herself from the pressure of her taunt and blanket. Canada Toyle still surveyed the kitchen living room from her throne-like armchair by the fireplace, with her husband Beaumont sat like a witch's familiar beside her. 
Meanwhile, Persia and India still stood like sentries, vetting anyone daring to enter the realm of the Druze. Oh, my brave darlings are home at last, cried out Canada Toil. Bowman and I were of a mind that we might have lost you forever. Hm. You took your own sweet time, Norbert, said Persia. Not brought back any friends with you, I hope. Mother, how are you? My own dear sister siblings, greetings to you too, Norbert responded unfazed. No, Adrian has. I do beg your pardon, Beaumont, afternoon to you too. No, sadly, Persia, Adrian has not graced us with his presence this time, but I'm sure he'll be flattered to know of your interest in him. You know, if you'd like a date with Adrian, you need only ask and I'll put in a good word for you. Persia scowled, and the twins could not stop themselves from laughing out loud. Norbert played his sisters at least as well as Adrian, but then they were his sisters. It's not that we don't like Adrian, you understand, Norbert? Grandma Drew whimpered. It's just, well, it's just... Tea, anyone? Oh, I'm parched. It's simply that we despise the very molecules that form him. Persia! said India Halliday, and everyone fell silent. Nan and Tristan do not need to hear this bickering. They've chosen to forsake the influence of Adrian. And their father? Persia, we are here to welcome them home to Botcher Street and delight in the fact that we are now an almost complete family under one roof. Despite what you may have heard, my darlings, we're not witches, she said, and then added, although some of us do wield our own special power. The twins understood her meaning. India was in charge and no one in the Drew household had ever better forget it. In the second floor rooms of the middle house in Quell Terrace, Nan finally felt her journey from Wanish Limpley had come to an end. Under the care of Emma, the middle house in Quell Terrace was by far the cleanest place in the whole Drew household and the rooms seemed to come into their own with a new attention. Nan's room was large and elegant, but it was also informal and unfussy. Her mother had decorated it beautifully, in that it differed enough from Tristan's room for anyone to know it belonged to a girl, without it being too girly. It even possessed a small balcony overlooking the huge park-like gardens. In fact, the only thing wrong with her new bedroom was that it was not her snug room above the archway in the painted pilchard inn. Nan! Tristan! called out Emma from the stairs. Nan heard her mother knock on the door of Tristan's room. A couple of knocks later and Emma must have opened the door. Tristan? Nan? she called out again. Nan's door was open, but Emma knocked and waited to be asked in before joining her daughter on the balcony. I wanted to speak to both you and Tristan together, but I can't find him, began Emma. Never mind. Do you like your room, Nan? I've tried to decorate it with your taste in mind. It must have been hard on you both to have lasted so long with you, Tristan, and then Hartley in that one room at our old house. By the way, I've framed some of your pictures. I hope you don't mind. Some of them are hanging in my bedroom too. You're welcome to them, said Nan. If there's anything you want altered or painted or get rid of, just let me know and I'll... Mum, Nan interrupted her. It's all lovely. It feels like coming home. Emma smiled with relief and kissed her daughter. You've no idea how happy that makes me. I was so worried you wouldn't like it, Nan. You and Tristan have been messed about too much recently. It's no wonder you got ill in Wanish. But you're here to stay now. I promise you. Woo, 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 woo. A voice rang out from the garden below. Have you seen Tristan? asked Emma. Not since we got back. This isn't a house, this is a labyrinth. Tristan could be anywhere, 
said Emma, as she went off in search of her eldest son. Nan knew her mother's search was in vain, but what was she going to tell her? That Tristan had dumped his belongings in his room, made his way with Norbert to the quiet corridor with the connecting canvas, and was now back in Wanish Limply practising his lacoche? It was wonderful knowing that she could go back to see her friends in Wanish at any time, but Nan was content to leave the adventures and the excitement the canvas offered her and just become a normal 12-year-old girl for a couple of days. You're here to stay now, her mother had said, but how could Emma know she could not have been further from the truth? Whoa, 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 the voice from the garden cried out again. Nan watched her grandpa tumble off his dog cart for the first time that evening. The thought entered Nan's head that her family was just as strange, unique and incredible as anything in Wanish Limply. And then again she thought, maybe all families are. A sudden glimpse of her reflection in the mirror on the wall brought it home. She had to examine the mark the white boy had left on her. So faint it was impossible to detect unless you looked closely or knew it was there. The iris of her left eye was no longer just a grey-green colour. Now there was an ever-so-subtle dark brown fracture pattern within an incomplete circle, the white boy's signature. Well, she sighed, I left my mark on him too. Nan flumped down onto the bed, closed her eyes, and for a few hours did not let the past, the future, or even the present trouble her. Thank you.